Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us who are looking to bring just a little more love and a little more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Gretchen, and I am so glad to be here with you today as your host for today's episode. Today's podcast is the beginning of a conversation that's going to last a number of weeks through the middle of August as we pick up the not at all small topic of God. Now, God as a concept or the word itself has always come with some charge in my experience in Unitarian Universalist conversations, primarily because we are so filled with people who have come to our faith out of a sense of rejection or injury from other religious traditions where they were forced to believe in a God that their intellect or their experience couldn't align with, or they were made to feel shame for not believing, not experiencing the God everyone else was professing, or they were made to feel shame or marginalized because the God that was professed had judgment for who they were. So this, these sorts of experiences can make it so that our communities are places of deconstruction, rejection, absence, rather than a place of curiosity and expansion and discovery across difference about how we each understand or don't understand this big idea of God. When I first started as the minister at Foothills, I remember very clearly being told that talking about God was off limits. I called it the G word. Uh, the other, there were two G words at the time, God and growth. <laughs> I like to think we've been able to tackle both over the last 11 years. I've never been one to uh, abide by cautions about what is taboo because keeping something totally off limits where you're only in a place of rejection and absence and deconstruction ensures that everything you're doing is still being shaped by that old and incomplete notion rather than something that is positive and life-giving for who you want to be and become. All of this became clear to me when I first attended something at my, what would become my seminary, the Isle of School of Theology. Um, But I was there at that point as a leader from my Unitarian Universalist Church in Denver, where I was a member. Um, We were there for just a conference to explore worship and language and worship. It was a few years before I'd end up enrolling. It was a conference on music and feelings and impacting the heart in worship. It wasn't just about Unitarian Universalist worship, but the UU theologian and scholar Tendeka was the keynote speaker. Before this point, I have to say my thinking about God could be characterized in two ways based in two periods of my life. First, the Catholic way, although heavily influenced by the scripture from John that God is love, abide in God. This way remained pretty confined to an image of God that was a noun, 
something or someone with all the omnis confirmed, you know, omniscient, all-seeing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent, all-everywhere. This God determined everything, judged everything, created everything, saw everything. This period of God thinking continued through my freshman year in college, after which it fell apart. That brought it the second way. It was not a crisis of faith I experienced exactly, but more like a letting go. The Catholic way just didn't compel me any longer. It was like I woke up and saw what had always been, but I'd overlooked. And suddenly this idea of God felt profoundly unworthy of worship, thoroughly disconnected to my ideals. If you would have asked me directly, I would have said I was an atheist, which sometimes I just thought meant just nothing. So by the time I found myself in the lecture hall listening to Tendeka, I was hungry for something positive and constructive words and tools that were just, they were more than just nothing, more than just what I didn't believe. I had by that point been a Unitarian Universalist for about seven years. I was long past the relief of the freedom that I was describing earlier. I understood what it was we weren't worshiping. I wanted to be able to name what it was we were, whatever that would mean, to claim a deeper connection and just an understanding of something that would be worthy. But I really had no idea where even to begin. What Tandeka said that day, I know now, is not that revolutionary. You'd probably hear a version of it in the opening lecture to most any class exploring theology, especially liberal theology. But for me, it was precisely the opening I needed to open up my heart, expand my mind, and take in greater complexity to begin that constructive vision. She said, first, there exists ultimate reality. Then there are words to describe the reality. First, truth, with a capital T, then words attempting to name that truth. The words are not the truth, they are secondary. Words get feelings and meanings attached to them, traditions ascribed, but those feelings and meanings should not be confused with the reality itself. What's more, the language that we use to describe ultimate reality should always be considered an approximation, profoundly inadequate, inherently inaccurate. As my theology professor Edward Antonio said a few years later, all theology is a lie. Because in theology, you're attempting to convey what, by its definition, no one understands and put it into words that for which, by its definition, there are no words. As is said in the Hindu scriptures, those who think that God is not comprehended by them, God is comprehended. But those who think that God is comprehended, no, God not. With this in mind, you might wonder why ultimately we decided to have a whole series in the middle of the summer about God. We're spending, I think, eight weeks on this topic. Why, given all of this caution, would we try to say so many words about something that cannot be put into words? For me, it goes back to that longing for something that isn't just absence isn't rejection, a continued attempt to try to create metaphors 
images, concepts that help keep pushing us towards what could be something that can fill up those rejected spaces and instead place their greater clarity about what it is that would be worthy of worship, of adoration, of um, aim, of our collective aim, our collective hope. And still, and that's probably a good thing, it indicates a posture of humility and a willingness to acknowledge that we might be wrong. Whatever it is that we're currently asserting, we might be wrong. I think this is the Unitarian Universalist way. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Sean, who began our series with exactly these questions of why, why would we even try to entertain the idea of God, use the word God? And what is some of the history about why we'd be asking why? I'm excited for the few weeks ahead. This adventure where we explore, imagine, shake loose old ideas, grow our sense of what's possible, grow our capacity to love across difference grow our capacity to love more of this world. Let's get started. I'm going to start with an excerpt from a poem by Tom Barrett. If I say the word God, people run away. They've been frightened, sat on till the spirit cried uncle. Now they play hide and seek with somebody they can't name. They know he's out there looking for them. And they want to be found, but there is all this stuff in the way. I can't talk about God and make any sense. And I can't not talk about God and make any sense. So we talk about the weather. And we're talking about God. How did we get here? In 1944, there were just over 1 million atheists in the United States. Now, there are over 32 million. How did we get here? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not upset about this. I'm mostly curious, because the change is cataclysmic. Well, estimates vary, around 91% of the world has some sort of belief in God. If you look at the geographic breakdown, the majority of convinced atheists live in two countries, China and Russia, because, well, communism. But still, how did we get here? Or maybe phrased differently, why, as Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor asks, Was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society? Well, in the year 2023, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. What happened in the last 523 years that would so fundamentally alter the very horizons of what could be imagined? A world without God, being good without God. Now, it's not that people don't believe in God in 2023. In fact, even in Western countries, the vast majority of people still do. Or even that in 1500, there were not individuals who lived a life of convinced atheism. But the question Taylor is asking is more functional. What makes atheism a viable option in the marketplace of beliefs now? What makes it more functional than it did in ages past? Because it didn't seem possible then. Now, I grew up an atheist, not because anyone told me to be one. I knew other people believed in God, but my pretty liberal secular household didn't pressure me to believe one way or the other. So left to my own device- devices, I defaulted to atheism. 
that experience of defaulting to atheism is not only a nightmare world for religious fundamentalists who are bent on a low-key cultural theocracy, but it also tells us something important about our age and time. Because as I defaulted to atheism, I began to absorb a narrative that I would later learn is called the, this is a mouthful, subtraction theory of secularization. In this case, the word secular in secularization means the movement of a society towards being less religious. The theory, the subtraction theory, goes something like this. And as I share it, I want you to notice how you might have internalized this narrative. So here it goes. Once upon a time, humans believed in fairies and gods and demons. But then we became rational. And we understood through science what we would have attributed to spirits. And the world became disenchanted, leaving only nature and scientific truth. Reason replaced God. Fact replaced superstition. Explanations undid stories of the supernatural. If only we knew enough. Now, I imbibed the story that in Western society, at least, in the survival of the fittest of beliefs, atheism was on the path to victory. It seemed only natural. Now, looking back, adopting this view of God as vestigial, a facet of life that we have outgrown, had one, maybe many, but one unfortunate trap that I fell face forward into and can be summarized by the phrase which I think I said more times than I wish. I'm too smart to believe in God. This view of the world makes for an atheism that is smug and superior. You might have pity for those who live in the past because they couldn't have known better all that we've learned from science, but right now, there's no excuse for those of us living to not get on board. Now, while we as Unitarian Universalists believe in evolution, to believe that evolution lands us at one unchangeable truth, well, not only does that betray an evolutionary ethos, but more fundamentally, it goes contrary to one of our most core beliefs. In the deep humility that we must bring with us, embody even, as we approach questions of ultimate importance. We cannot touch truth with a clenched fist. The pursuit of truth requires an open hand, ready to embrace the wonders of holy curiosity rather than a closed fist clutching onto rigid, pre-existing beliefs. I wondered if you would clench your fist with me. So make that fist. And I want you to imagine all the human need that you have and that we all have to have all the answers to be right, to have it figured out. And then kind of release your hands, unfurling into that receptive pose, ready to seek understanding. Now, it can be a little difficult to do with our hands. I kind of want to stay in that rigid position, but it's even harder to do with our hearts and our minds. Now, if you're listening to this and you come from a place of religious trauma, your clenched fists 
against the story of God is probably a defense mechanism. Protecting yourself from the haunting echoes of past experiences of condemnation, exclusion, or spiritual abuse. Perhaps it took all of your effort to even listen to this podcast about God. Perhaps you felt at times like you've had a defective God antenna, simply because your experiences don't match those often preached from pulpits or discussed in religious text. Your clenched fist is one of disconnect of where you find holiness not being seen as valid by others. Or perhaps you don't feel your fist is clenched at all, but you also don't feel motivated to re-examine questions that you've previously answered. No matter where you are on this journey, I want to offer you an invitation to find your way of relaxing into deepening understanding and that expanding of ourselves. Because if we can get ourselves out of the debate about God's existence, which I really hope we can, friends, we actually might get to more intriguing questions. As the Unitarian minister A. Powell Davies said, What we must ask then is not whether there is a God, as though God could be something outside everything else, but what it is of which we have an experience when we feel the power of truth or claim or the claim of justice or the sense of beauty we experience something in each of these what is it or as the unitarian universalist minister galen gingrich writes in god revisited we have a word for the totality of the physical world the word is universe We also need a word for the unification of all the experiences in the universe. That word is God. When I say I believe in God, I am saying that I believe in an experience that intimately and extensively connects me to all that is, all that is present, as well as all that is past, and all that is possible. I want to tell you something about me before I started an active journey of unclenching my grasp on ultimate truth. Back before I was a Unitarian Universalist, back before I couldn't imagine myself ever becoming a theist, despite being so sure of my atheism, I was haunted by God. Now part of the haunting was, I was haunted by the voices of what I assume spoke for all religions and so-called God-believing people, preaching what sounded like hatred and ignorance about established scientific fact and also about me and other members of the LGBTQIA community. And despite these representatives of God that seemed to be more filled with hatred than anything else, I was haunted by human questions. Like, is this this really it? Do we all just decompose when we die? And the answers I came to, I didn't really like. Driving past churches as a child, I would always wonder, what do they do in there? What do they know that I don't? How can people believe in such make-believe and then at another gut level I felt the sinking feeling I wish I could believe. But I couldn't bring myself to believe in God or heaven or any of the fantastical stories even though I secretly hoped that I was wrong and maybe just had a defective God antenna. To paraphrase Julian Barnes, I didn't believe in God, but I missed him.
maybe you can relate. I didn't want a God that answered all my questions. No, but I wanted a God to hold my questions. Now, in 2003, then-president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, Bill Sinkford, kicked off a stir when he preached a sermon in which he spoke at length about the experience of being in the hospital with his 15-year-old son, writing, My son Billy, then 15 years old, had a overdosed on drugs, and it was unclear whether he would live. As I sat with him in the hospital, I found myself praying. First, the selfish prayers for forgiveness for the time not made, for the too many trips, for the many things unsaid, and sadly for a few things said that should never have passed my lips. But as the night darkened, I finally found the pure prayer, the prayer that asked only that my son would live. And late in the evening, I felt the hands of a loving universe reach out. The hands of God, the spirit of life, the name was unimportant. I knew that these hands would be there to hold me whatever the morning brought, and I knew, though I cannot tell you how, that those hands were holding my son as well. I knew that I did not have to walk the path alone, that there is a love that has never broken faith with us and never will. My son survived, but the experience stayed with me. Sinkford went on to say that we Unitarian Universalists for Fear of revisiting the harmful nature of religious belief systems that demand conformity have for generations not embraced religious language or a language of reverence that allows us to, quote, name the holy, to talk about human agency in theological terms, the ability of humans to shape and frame our world guided by what we find to be of ultimate importance. UU Minister Forrest Church has written, God is not God's name. God is my name for the mystery that looms within and arches beyond the limits of my being, life force, spirit of life, ground of being, these too are names for the unnameable, which I am now content to call my God. God is not God's name. What if God is shorthand for something deeply human, something that atheists and theists actually agree on? God is not God's name. The Christian Reformed theologian Schleiermacher reminds us that first exists ultimate reality, and then there are the words to describe the reality. First exists ultimate reality, and then there are the words to describe the reality. Ultimate reality is real, but our capacity to perceive, comprehend, or even describe is not only secondary, is incomplete. Because they're just words. Thus, the words we use are clumsy attempts at capturing the reality, and we are left holding beautiful and partial truths. And so it's only natural that we hold them together. Not only together one to another, but together one of us with another, trying to make sense of anything in the face of this fractured and fractional truth. We gather together with others to construct mosaics of understanding, all pieces pointing towards something beyond their edges. God in the classical sense, the man in the tower, the triple omnis, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, 
can for many fill in the cracks of the pieces of truth that we find along the way. But for many of us, there are too many cracks in that idea of God to begin with. So it wouldn't hold much of anything. And so we search for something else to hold the pieces of truth that we accumulate. But God is not God's name. And so here's where I'm going to put my cards on the table. Everyone needs a concept of God. Not in the southern sense of a church lady saying that one needs some God. Or even in the sense that I want you to use the word God or believe in God in any formulation. But we need something that lives in the conceptual space of God. And I have three main reasons why. The first is practical and interpersonal. That to be able to move within interpersonal relationships in which the vast majority of people on this planet and in this country believe or experience God, we must have a working concept of God that is not based in stereotype or ignorance. We must have an openness to hearing about people's relationship with God because that relationship reveals some of the deepest realities of how they live on this earth. If we are to build bridges of understanding between us, God cannot be the cavern that we cannot cross. Remember Bernard Lomer? Seeking to understand doesn't mean seeking to agree. Now, the second reason for you is also pract practical, but it's also linguistic, which is simple. Religious language, does, which doesn't mean Christian or God talk, does offer a breadth of tools to allow us to describe what is true about our experience of the world. We are at a loss without the words. This is what Bill Singford was lifting up about his experience in the hospital with his son. He needed language to describe that experience to be true how, to how he experienced life. He needed a language of reverence, not only to describe, but also to draw him deeper into his relationship with life itself. The third and the, the final reason, we're going to return to the work of Charles Taylor. Writing in his seminal work, A Secular Age, Taylor proposes that in the last 500 years, we have moved through two distinct stages before arriving in our modern secular age. The first age was where the political order of the day was assumed to be divinely inspired. Kings, priests, monks all had their roles to play in God's world, and most of us as peasants too, mostly to support the kings, priests, and the monks, but I digress. The second age as the divine right of kings was challenged by the Reformation, it shifted the emphasis. Now, now the status quo, the political order, was not assumed to be divinely inspired, but suddenly the religious task was to construct our political order in conformity with God's laws. So as the divine structure of society crumbled, the religious impulse was to reform society in the image of God. Now the third age, our modern age, Taylor describes as an age of authenticity in which the religious impulse fully ex expands, fully embraces the romantic expressivist notion that each one of us has their own way of realizing our humanity and that we are called to live it out rather than conform to any imposed models. But Charles Taylor says this radical transformation of our society that he says started in 1960 has left our age haunted. Haunted because instead of everyday life being enchanted with divine meaning, meaning is now sought to be created within the mind, be it in the individual mind or the collective mind. And in that transition from meaning inherent to meaning constructed, 
the ultimate aim of our life shifted from fulfilling divine purpose to simply human flourishing. And while there is nothing wrong with it, however, there is a danger that without the concept of God orienting us towards a force, a being, a reality beyond ourselves, it limits the scope of existence. This is especially true for those of us who live lives of relative privilege. When we don't have that concept of God orienting us beyond, we can collapse into a self-centered understanding of the nature of life. This is not to say that the telos or the, the world in which God was divinely inspiring everything wasn't harmful or violent. It was. But something about our everyday mundane lives holding divine importance captures something so very human. The need to be in relationship with a concept that captures some beyondness, some out-of-graspness of the nature of existence of itself, of how small we are, and the impossibility of knowing if we will make a difference, and yet still allows us to experience the awe and wonder of living itself. Something that can hold together all of that and allow us to still somehow get out of bed in the morning. Living in this tension, in the wake of the loss of a unified worldview, the cross-pressures of life, Taylor proposes, leaves many of us with a feeling, a, a sense of loss. And it's important, and it's impossible, to put our fingers on exactly why. Taylor posits it may arise from a vague sense that our actions, goals, and achievements have lost an ultimate weight or gravity, or that the sheer multitude of different beliefs leaves even the most the convicted theists and atheists with doubts. This potential retreat into self-centeredness, not only because it's so tempting as humans to only care about ourselves, because how we experience life as the self, as the creating agent for meaning, we are inherently more and more oriented towards only the self. This reality that orientation towards the self has an antidote in God or more precisely in the conceptual space that God inhabits for many people. And I'm not saying that God is the answer. I am saying that for centuries a divine being has been the way that humans have filled the conceptual space that orients us outside of ourselves towards a, mo a moral example, a conception of humility or the ability to abide through pain and tragedy or a capacity to re relate beyond oneself and one's understanding. God is not God's name. This conceptual place we call God is not synonymous with the supernatural, but with the deeply human need. It is the name for the reality of beyondness, the power of becoming, the reality of all that is outside your control, of the existence of beauty and grace and mystery, the interdependent web of the entire universe of which we are atomically, relationally, and physically a part of. And without this category of beyondness, this beyondness, without this category of something in our lives, without something transcendent, a sense of mystery or accountability of relationship, we run the risk of finding ourselves constructing a world with ourselves at the center and all others and all no other notions of mystery at the margin. I often say I don't believe in God, but I experience God. Belief is about surety and about claiming something to be true, but faith is about trusting, and I have faith in God. I have room in my life, an active relationship with this conceptual void that I cannot control or truly define but who I learn about in the space between us that draws me out of myself and leads me towards love. 
I don't know if that transcending something is just the mystery of this magical brain perceiving a life that I didn't ask for, but I'm along for the ride. So here's my challenge for you. You don't have to believe in God. I don't want you to believe in God, but I do want you to consider not only what language you use to speak about this category that God fulfills for others, but also to hold a spaciousness in your life for that holy other, that beautiful mystery to dwell, to hold open that space that is undefinable. God is not God's name. First came ultimate reality. Then came the language to speak of it, imperfect and partial. But no matter what, we cannot hold truth in a clenched fist. So let us open our hands and make space at the center for the human reality of beyondness that will haunt us until we make space for it to dwell. Amen and blessed be. That brings us to the end of our podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you can think of a friend or a family member who you think would really appreciate this series, we hope you will share it with them and keep the conversation going. We also always appreciate reviews in your whatever podcast app you are using. And if you're able, we also always appreciate your financial support. Every little bit counts. You can go to foothillsuu.org forward slash give and make a donation. We are so grateful to be partners with you in the continuing work of unleashing courageous love.